Today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4. We're going to finish up Colossians and then I'll just talk to you briefly about the next book that we're going to go into, which is the book of Revelation. And I've got to tell you, I'm excited to be in Revelation. Uh, I hope you are too. Uh, I'm going to try to... I'm going to I want my excitement to, to exude and I want you to catch that excitement because this is a great book uh, and it helps to really understand and explain... The, the culmination of human history, the function and role of Jesus Christ, his superiority, uh, the victory that we have in the, in belie- as believers. So you see, all these things kind of come together in the book of Revelation. If you're not familiar with it, maybe you've seen things on the History Channel or documentaries and, you know, scary visions and stuff like that. But there's a lot to this book, so I'm excited about it. As usual, uh, we're going to start in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. What we do is every week... Every Sunday, we go through the book of Proverbs uh, a few verses at a time in succession, and eventually that way, over a few years or so, we'll be through all 31 uh, chapters of the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 3, where we're at this Sunday, is verses 9 and 10. Two verses. It says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the firstfruits of all your increase, So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The first thing that comes to mind and kind of try to break this down piece by piece is first fruits. If you understand the Old Testament, the feast of first fruits was covered in Leviticus chapter 23 in the Old Testament. And basically what would happen is you would, you know, you plant and you would have a crop and it would be harvest time. And what you would do is you would take and sheaf a good portion of your harvest tie it up, and also get a male lamb uh, without blemish, without defect, and you would bring it to the priest, and you would offer those to the Lord. Now, understanding that the, the sheaf, again, had to be the, from the first of your, of your harvest, and the lamb couldn't be blind or limp or sickly. God wanted, the understanding here is that with the lamb, God wanted the best. He wanted the best of what you had. And we see that brought through to the Messiah, Jesus. He was the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice. He sacrificed himself for our sins. And the first fruits was a picture of the first. So it's really, you see the symbolism in the Old Testament. Sometimes we read through it and say, I don't understand this. But there's so much in there. God wants our first and God wants our best. Now, there's another law. There's a few laws that come into play here that kind of connect. There was the law of the tithe. Most Christians say, what does tithe mean? Well, the word tithe means a tenth. And what would happen is in the Old Testament, you would have the the Levites, the tribe of Levi, and all the other surrounding tribes. And they would get real estate. They had land, but the Levites didn't. Uh, But they would be devoted to God's work. They would teach the people. They would read the law. They would, whether it be the tabernacle or later the temple, they would take care of the, 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 the structure. They would be in charge of the sacrifices. And they had many duties. So all the surrounding tribes would give a tenth of what they had to these people so that they could support, be supported in doing the Lord's work. And there's another law that comes to play. So we give, we want to give God our first and we want to give God our best. There's also a law that said if you had a a, a plot of land and you had a crop growing, what would happen is after you harvested, you give your first fruits to God, You would harvest the rest of it, and then you would leave a certain percentage for the poor and the indigent of the community. And you would let them come in for free 
and harvest. You'd let them go through your fields. It was sort of like a, like a social program, a welfare system in a sense. Those who couldn't afford, maybe through physical disability or what have you, they would get free food. So bring all these things together. Would we ever treat God as a pauper? Would we ever say, yeah, here's the last of what I have? Well, let's look at that today. Sometimes some of God's people will buy the big houses, will do the additions, they'll buy the new cars, they'll go on lavish vacations, send their kids to private schools, and that's not a bad thing. And then say, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, something for God. And they kind of reach down in their pocket and say, yeah, I can give something to God. What, would you, what do you think about that? See, the Bible says to honor the Lord with all of our possessions. And then the question is, with the car that you drive, would you give somebody a ride who needed a ride? Would you bring somebody a meal who needed a meal? With our homes, right? Do we open up our homes to others? Do we open up our homes to maybe a young couple who's struggling and let them come into our homes and counsel them? Or is our home our sanctuary? The Bible says to honor him with all our possessions. So everything that we have, it all comes from the Lord anyway, right? So it all should go back to the Lord. Jesus said, if you do to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it for me. So you see all these laws kind of come into play. And it leads into the next verse. The next verse is, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Not so much a quid pro quo with this for that, but more of a cause and effect. Even better, your needs will be met. Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom of heaven, all these things will be added to you. Now, we have to take that in context. <laughs> Some like to say, well, what Jesus meant was you can have the mansions and the success and all the, the grandiose things of life. But if you take it in context of what Jesus just spoke about, he spoke about clothes. He, talk, he spoke about food. So if we seek first the kingdom of heaven, all of our needs will be met. Now, I've employed the, uh, the understanding of the tithe, and I've got to tell you, I don't live a lavish lifestyle. I didn't pick a profession years ago that was lucrative, but God has always met my needs. I don't necessarily have filled barns in the back and overflowing vats of wine, but you understand what that means, right, in today's society. And Calvary's, the type of church that we belong to, the Calvary's, we're not the type of church that has thermometers on the lawn for funds or we send out mail-outs. We don't do any of that. But understand, it's still a Christian responsibility, a personal responsibility to commit to be generous and to support the work of the Lord. Okay? So the last time we saw, going back to Colossians or going forward to Colossians, the last time we saw that the fruit of our lives what the fruit of our lives can bear when we're in the spirit and employ love as the bond of perfection. Now, I just want to cover that briefly because I think that's important. The Apostle Paul speaks about putting on tender mercies, compassion, kindness, all these wonderful um, attributes or characteristics of the person who's filled with the spirit. And then towards the end, the Apostle Paul says, last but not least, and put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And what I explained to you was, uh, you know, in the construction field, kind of like something called particle board, right? And basically what particle board is, you can buy it in a store. It's used to make cabinets and, and things like that, structural things. Particle board is pieces of wood, wood chips, sawdust, any type of wood. And on its own, it's kind of worthy, but, you know, there's not much you can do with it. You take those wood chips and that sawdust and you throw it in a big vat and you pour this resin into it, okay? It's like a, really a glue. And then what happens is when it's cured, they make boards out of it. 
And the boards are actually quite strong. And I likened love to the resin that held everything together. See, Paul said, put on love, uh, you know, or put on tender mercies, kindness, compassion. And those are like the pieces of wood chips. But without love, which is the resin that holds everything together, those things kind of stand out on their own, right? And we read the, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, where the Apostle Paul speaks about having all these great gifts of the Spirit. He said, but without love, it means nothing. So understand, that was the uh, main idea from last Sunday. And today we're going to finish up with the book of Colossians and then segue into the book of Revelation. So, Colossians 4, starting with verse 2. He says, continue earnest, earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So Paul's closing his letter to the Colossians. Remember, Paul's in prison. Uh, this is the, pretty much the last chapter. Some housekeeping things he has to deal with, some pithy words of wisdom. It's all kind of put into this last chapter. So let's take it apart. Two recurring themes, prayer and thanksgiving. A few things about that. Number one, they go hand in hand. Number two, they should be a staple of our spiritual diet. And number three, we covered all these throughout the books that we covered on Sundays. Luke, Acts, Colossians, prayer, thanksgiving. You saw that through all these books and all the books of the Bible, really. The question to ask, that we should ask ourselves individually, is prayer and thanksgiving. Is that a staple in my spiritual diet? And only as individuals can we answer that question for ourselves. I don't know how much each one of you spends time in prayer. And likewise, you don't know how much time I spend in prayer. But that's an important question that we need to ask ourselves. Prayer and thanksgiving. Am I committed to these? What would you say or how would you look at someone or if I said, hey, you know, I've been a Christian for 15 years. And in those 15 years, I prayed a lot. I really prayed a lot. I've got to tell you. I was on my knees. I had my prayer journal. And after 15 years, I think I hit a plateau. I, I'm done praying, guys. You know, I kind of put it, I put it all in a big bank account and I'm done praying. You would kind of look at me like, well, that's strange. You're done praying. Why? Because prayer is the lifeline to God. Now, let's take that and bring it into a human relationship, right? What is the one word, one word, that in a marriage, if this one word starts to fail, you're headed to divorce court. What's this one word? A little bit of a big word. Go ahead, call it out. Communication, right? That's it. And I can liken our prayer to God or, you know, hearing from the Lord and praying to the Lord as communication with the Father. Just like in a, a marital relationship, it's, it's going to go south if you stop communicating. It's the same thing with our relationship with God. Communication, prayer, and thankfulness. And these are going to be some repetitive themes as we go through today, this sermon. There's going to be some repetitive themes that Paul keeps nailing, uh, trying to nail home. Kind of reminds me of the pastor who, uh, the congregation, the board, hires this pastor. You know, the old pastor's retiring. They want some fresh blood in there. They get some young pastor in there, heard some good things. God's impressive resume, and they, they're just excited for that first Sunday sermon. And he gets up there, and he's excited, and he's, you know, he's you know, expressive, and he really gets the word of God home, right? Everybody's listening to it. And everyone's elated over this new pastor. 
So next Sunday comes and everyone's excited to hear what he has to say. And he preaches the same sermon. Now, that's a little weird, but let's see what happens next Sunday. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, the pastor preaches the same sermon. So the board has an emergency meeting and they get the pastor and they say, listen, what's going on here? You know, you keep preaching the same sermon. And the pastor's response was, well, when the congregation gets it, then I'll move on to the next one. But as human beings, we need a lot of those repetitive things. We do. And that's why the Bible repeats a lot of those themes, because God made us and he knows us. We need to hear some of these things over and over again. Verse 3 and 4. We see that the Apostle Paul, he's also making requests of the Colossians. And what are his requests? What does Paul want being in prison? What does he want from the Colossians? Writing this letter to them. You know, I'm rotting in this stinking prison. The food stinks. Where's, how, how's my appeal going? Where's my defense attorney? Um, you know, all the things that you might expect. You know, how about special privileges? Can you get these guys to get me... Sp- I mean, after all, I am an apostle. I would, I'm a model prisoner. I would like special privileges. Well, if you think that, you haven't been reading your Bible. You see, the Apostle Paul was Christ-centered, and his primary concern was for others, not himself. He wants to know. I'm in prison, and I don't want prison to stop my momentum of preaching. Pray for me. For what? Well, in some of his letters, we know that he spoke to the guards. In the book of Acts, we know that even under confinement, he spoke to the authorities, the magistrates, the kings, the rulers, and he preached his heart out. Right? He was others-focused, and he didn't want that momentum to stop. So, yes, I'm riding in this prison, but, guys, I really need the gospel to go forth. I don't want to end my life with being stifled. And we should all have that prayer. You know, salvation is a precious gem. And sometimes when we're in the Christian culture for long enough, it's a, you hear the same things over and over again, and it becomes hopefully not common. But salvation is precious. There's people out there who haven't heard it, who need to hear it. And that's something we should pray for. Lord, you know, maybe I am shy. I'm a little shy, but my example. Help me to have a good example so that when somebody asks me the million-dollar question, I notice something different about you. Why are you like that? Then it's an easy answer, right, even for the shy people. And it's, it's something that we need to do. Uh, anytime, 10.15, 10.20, if you look in the back office there, which is my office here, it will be myself and my assistant pastor, and we're in prayer. Our heads are bowed in prayer. Anytime we do a, a teaching, a sermon, a guest speaker comes out, it doesn't matter. We pray. And one of the main staples of our prayer is, Lord, help us to be effective in communicating your word to the people. It's not about me. It's not about Anthony. It's about the word getting to the people as effectively as possible. And that's something we need to look at. Verse 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, or the unbelievers, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be seasoned with grace, I'm sorry, with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Or, be wise how you act or how you behave towards unbelievers. Very important. We're supposed to be setting an example. Make the most of every opportunity with them, and don't waste time. You see... After our primary function as believers of worshiping God, that is our primary function, to worship God and to glorify him. And then there's other priorities down there on the list. And one of those priorities is to be salt and light. I'll give you an example of light. On a beautiful night, you know, you look around and there's like a, a, a whitish-blue haze around everything. And you look up at the sky and you see it's a full moon, right? But the moon 
cast this beautiful moonlit night, and, and it's just so neat to see that. But understand, the moon in and of itself has no luminosity. The moon is reflecting the sun's light, and it does a pretty good job of bringing it down to the earth the way the planets are situated so that it's not so dark. It's lit up a little bit, right? And it's the same thing with us. In and of ourselves, we're fallen creatures. I don't have any luminosity of myself. However, when I'm around others, I want to reflect the light of Christ. And that's when I shine the brightest. When I can take the beauty of Jesus Christ and I can reflect that to you, man, I'm on fire. But in and of myself, like the moon, I have some crags, I have some crustiness, right? The moon's not real pretty in and of itself, but it is pretty when it, it, it shines the sun's light. The other portion of it, light and salt. Salt has a preserving effect. It's an antiseptic, and it hinders putrefaction or microbial growth. So when you put, in, you know, in the days before re refrigerations and before ice boxes, as my grandmother used to say, the ice box. I'm like, what's an ice box? It's, a, it's an older generation thing. Before all that was, was curing of meats. You know, they would salt the meat, and it would help to delay the putrefaction, the microbial effect. So we need to be salt and light to a very decaying world. And when I ask this question, think about what comes to mind. What are we? What are you? What am I? What are we wasting our time with while the world goes to hell in a handbasket? All you have to do is turn on whatever news channel and see the world's a mess. And that's just a microcosm. That's just a snapshot of the world. God sees all the sin of the world at the same time, and Jesus took that sin upon himself to die for the world. So while the world goes to hell in a handbasket, what is it, Christians, brothers and sisters, that we're doing that we're wasting time with? And something should come to our minds. Are we just hanging out with our Christian friends and ignoring the outside world? You know, there's, there's a, funny, a funny, I don't know, uh, stages of, of Christianity People come to the Lord, they get so excited, and uh, they learn very soon that there's a Christian community. So I have, to, I have to leave all my other friends and just hang out with Christians. I have to take my kid out of public school and just put him in Christian school. I have to have any groups that I have and make them Christian groups. I'm not saying this is a good thing, because where's the salt? It almost reminds me of the safari at Great Adventure, where everybody gets in the car and we're safe and the windows are up and we see the buffaloes and the lions and the tigers... And we're like, we're safe in the car. Don't get out of the car. Christians can do that with the world. You know, we look at everyone else as, as, as animals, and, and we're, we're, we're the greatest. That's terrible. I think that's awful. Christians need to be more salt and light than cloister themselves. Because the world's going to hell. And, you know, Paul says, be careful of your behavior. Use wisdom when you deal with the outside world, because we're to be salt and light. What keeps us from, what, what is hindering us from serving God? We need to commit to redeeming the time and not waste it because time is short. I prayed for a friend of mine, Tom, who, you know, great guy, always has a great smile, works in the children's ministry or volunteers, better, better choice of words. And, uh, you know, he gets in this terrible car accident and his life is totally detoured. The first few days, the doctors didn't know if he was going to make it. That can happen to any of us, you know. Death waits for no man, and we don't know when our time is up, so why not redeem the time? Let's stop wasting time, brothers and sisters. You know, there's a whole world out there that God is saying to us, go. Go talk to them. Go say something. Shine the light. And then he spoke about uh, grace, and he spoke about salt. Now, grace and salt, oddly enough, go together. 
And this is another repetitive theme in the Bible that we see often. In other words, with grace and love comes the zing or the spice of conviction, of accountability, and of the hard truth. And it's only with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and Christ-centeredness that we can take the grace and love people, but also know and put up boundaries, okay? And to be truthful when people ask us questions about God's standards. They go together. And that's the whole message of the cross. God is a a God who has vengeance and judges the world, and rightly so, because the world is sinful. However, he loved us so much that he provided a way out, a simple way out that anybody could follow. Jesus Christ dying on the cross, right? So you see the grace and salt there, and we too are to have that grace and that salt. Too often the other part, because, you know, nobody wants to be rejected, conviction, accountability, hard truth, too often that part is forgotten. And you don't, we don't love the offender when we do that. Grace isn't ignoring bad behavior and sin. That's a perversion of grace, and it's unbiblical. There has to be a balance. And we do show love for the, for the offender when we do show grace, and we do have salt. They both, they both come together. Verse 7. Tychicus, who was a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Okay, a lot of instruction here. Many names were mentioned. Um, Tychicus and Onesimus both have a history with Paul, and Tychicus apparently delivered some of Paul's letters. But these two guys were needed in ministry, and they were committed. That's the theme of today's sermon, commitment. I try to find a, a thread that's wrapped around each sermon that I'm doing, and today I see commitment. These guys were committed, right? And I think today, even of our church, you know, a small church, a satellite church, a portable church in a school, we can't survive with committed, without committed people. And I see, I see Tiki Kisses and Onesimuses or Onesimai and Tiki Kai, you know, in this church. You know, I come in early in the morning and guys are already there. They're unloading the vans and they're setting up the children's ministry and book table people are out there. And it's just like, this is a school. And then Sunday morning, boom, it's converted into a church. So I have to say that every ministry needs an Onesimus and a Tiki Kiss just as much as it needs an Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul relied on these these unsung heroes, right? He relied on them. He needed them. And some of them even encouraged him and did what he needed them to do. Take my word for it. Just go do this. I need you to do this. You know, get get the parchments. Send this letter. Talk to these people. You know, report back to me. What's going on in that church? Paul needed these people. So we, we tend to look at the Pauls and the Peters and the big names, but forget about Onesimus and Tychicus. They're needed also. Verse 10. Last few verses. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you. And those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. 
And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. So, verse 10. We see that John Mark is mentioned in verse 10, and in 14, Demas is mentioned. Now, both of these men had failure in ministry, but with entirely different outcomes. It's kind of a portrait of four people. I'm going to expand it a little bit from just John Mark. We know that John Mark was supposed to go with Paul on a missions trip, and he, for whatever reason, it doesn't say, he just, <laughs> I'm done, I'm out of here, and he went back. And there's speculation of why he left, why he was uh, unfaithful or um, unreliable in a sense. And when uh, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him and Paul on the next trip, Paul said, no way, this guy's not reliable. He needs to prove himself in a sense. And it would cause such a division between John, um, Barnabas and Paul that Paul ended up taking Silas and Barnabas took John Mark. Okay, But what we see is that this ends up getting healed. It gets fixed afterwards. And apparently John Mark proves himself to the point where he ends up even writing one of the four Gospels. What an honor. But Demas kind of does something different. Here, Demas is in good standing, but we find out in 2 Timothy that Demas loved the world more than he loved the ministry, more than he loved God. And Demas did Paul great harm by leaving when when Paul really needed him the most. So Demas failed, and it doesn't say that Demas was restored, but John Mark was. Kind of reminds me of Peter and Judas, two other men who failed. Peter, denying the Lord three times. It had to take a rooster to crow before Peter realized what a buffoon he was and what an awful thing he did, what a, what a traitor he was to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Judas did the same thing, okay? He betrayed Jesus too. However, Judas, he gave the money back and he hung himself. Peter wept bitterly, repented, and became a great pillar of the early church. So you see profiles and courage. You see what do people do when they fail in ministry? And the question is, what do we do when we fail? Who do you want to identify with? I want to identify with Peter. I don't want to identify with Demas or, um, or Judas. I want to identify with Peter or John Mark. Do we run away from our problems? Or do we repent and just get it over with and, and start all over again? Do we get back on the horse? Or do we just lay there and languish and, and feel sorry for ourselves? So there's a lot of good profiles and courage in what to do when you fail through the scripture. And in verse 11, you see that these people, um, Jesus who is called justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who have the circumcision, they have proved to be a comfort to me. Some look at Paul, the Apostle Paul, those in leadership, especially if you turn on the Christian channel, and television makes people look larger than life. But those in ministry are human beings, just like the Apostle Paul was. And the Apostle Paul needed to be comforted. And he said, these guys, again, some of these names would... Some of you probably say, I never heard that name before again. They're unsung heroes. But they provided to be a great comfort to Paul, and he needed that comfort. Maybe they were, along with God, the Holy Spirit, maybe these people helped to push Paul. You're doing a good thing. Keep up the good work. You know, hang in there, right? So you see how we all work together. And verse 12 and 11, I'm sorry, verse 12 and 13, Paul gives instructions, um, or actually he speaks about Epaphras, And he said, Epaphras greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Alternate translations, 
Epaphras always struggling for you in prayer. Chuck Smith, uh, I've listened to some of his sermons, the founder of the Calvary Movement. He often spoke very affectionately about a core group in his church of elderly women who would meet regularly just to pray for the church. They weren't looking for glory, they weren't looking for their name and lights, but they just met quietly, and he found out about it, and they would pray for years for the church. And, you know, Chuck Smith's ministry turned out to be this great ministry in California. And now there's like hundreds of churches in California, even more in the United States and and across the seas. And Chuck Smith credits the success of the Calvary movement, a lot of it in his church, with this core group of elderly women who were constantly in struggle. They were constantly in warfare and prayer for the leadership, for the church, for new believers, etc. It's pretty amazing. But the goal here, why, why is the, the struggle in prayer? Why is there a, a fervent laboring in prayer? And the answer is the goal was to stand perfect and complete. The goal is a maturity of being in God's will, which really all of us can use more of. I'm thankful for those who I don't even know about in this fellowship who are praying for the leadership, who are praying for new believers, who are praying for young believers to become more perfect, mature, and complete in the Lord and to be in God's will. That's where I want to be. Because I have to be crazy to kind of do it my own way and be way off here when God's will is over here. That's foolishness. I want to be in God's will, and I want to be a mature believer. Verse 17. Paul says to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, this isn't the first time that the Apostle Paul said something like this. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, Also, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. What is the ministry that God has called you to? What comes to your mind? What are your spiritual gifts? What do you believe that the Lord keeps in prayer, he keeps bringing up to you? Something is coming up to your mind. Is it evangelism? Is it working in a ministry? Is it just a silent person who goes to prisons and nursing homes and drops off Bibles when needed? We all have a ministry. God uses all of us, but the question is, are we so bogged down with everything else and life that we don't fulfill our ministry, especially in our nation? What comes to your mind? And I believe that Paul says this more than once in the Bible because it's something that needed to be said. Hey, Archippus, fulfill your ministry. Hey, don't forget, God's called you to do this. Are you fulfilling it? It goes back to that word commitment again which is sorely lacking in today's society. How many times have we heard, God has called me to this marriage. This is the one. You've got stars in your eyes. You know, this is the person. And when ministers perform or officiate at weddings, they say, for better or for worse, in adversity or poverty, right? You know what that means? That means at some point in your marriage, your marriage is going to stink. That's what that means. That means that at some point in your marriage, see some people laughing, you or your spouse or both of you are going to be onerous, you know, and there's going to be impasses. Everything's great when the money's coming in and the kids are behaving and everything seems to be going right. Oh, this is a great marriage. What about when the money dries up? What about when you're having problems? What about when there's legal troubles? What about when there's sick troubles? That's the worst part. And I think people forget that today in our society. That's part of marriage. Your marriage long enough, believe me, the poverty and the adversity part, it's coming. The worst part, it's coming. So are we committed to our marriages? 
I hear it a lot. Only a year later for somebody to tell me, well, we fell out of love or this happened or that happened and we're getting a divorce. That's great. God has called me to this job, right? I've seen that too. Now, there's good reasons why you need to leave a job. However, the person that goes from job to job to job to job, don't make a commitment. Hey, what happened to the last job? Well, the boss was a jerk. There's a lot of jerky bosses out there, okay? Well, what about that job? Oh, my coworkers, they're problematic. Well, what about that job? Well, you know, when I signed up, I thought I was going to get a pedicure, and they didn't give me one. I mean, come on. Make a commitment. I've even heard God has called me to this church. And not just here. I've heard it from other pastors. Only to a few months later, well, I didn't like the worship. Go to another church. Well, I didn't like the pastor. Go to another church. Well, I didn't like the people in the church. Forget it. You know what I'm saying? Make a commitment. A friend of mine who's a pastor in uh, Calvary Chapel, New Brunswick, he gave me permission to use this. He calls it the Calvary Carousel. You know? I want the horse with the horn on it. Then I want to get off. I want to get the horse who's going like this. Go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Always a problem with the last church you went to. You're on your fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth church. Come on. Maybe you're the common denominator. You know what I'm saying? Make a commitment. Or God has called me to a particular ministry or a particular vision. Only to abandon it because I didn't get the desired response. Not enough people came out. You know, it wasn't what I thought it was. But wait a minute. God called you to that vision and ministry, right? Oh, yeah, I believe. So then why are you abandoning it? How about the men of faith? How about the women of faith in the Bible that God has called them to? Awful ministries. <laughs> Jeremiah, right? He gets beat up. He's considered a traitor. Oh, really, the Babylonians are going to invade. How could you say that? That's not patriotic. Throw him in a well. Let him sink in the mud. Don't feed the guy. Did Jeremiah once say... This isn't working out. This is stupid. Why am I doing this? Hey, you're going to be fine. Babylonians aren't coming. Please pull me out of here, and I won't bother you anymore. Jeremiah didn't say that. He was committed. It's lacking in America. It's lacking in the church. Commitment. Unbelievers at some times are more committed than we are. It's amazing. And I, and I don't say this to chastise. <laughs> I know it sounds like it, but I say to encourage, <laughs> to exhort, right? Part of the problem is, Part of the problem is there's too many choices in America. The commitment level in this country is being hurt by choices. Society often runs from problems instead of hunkering down and fixing the problems. You know, Now they have streamlined divorce, I found out. That's great. Well, it takes a few months to get divorced now instead of waiting a long time. So you could just make a snap decision. In a few months, you're done. Get rid of that ball and chain, and you're free again, right? Streamlined divorce. What a great thing that we have in our society. It's a sad thing. Choices. I don't like my marriage. And, hey, other fish in the sea. Choices, right? It's really sad that my, my wife told me that in the women's prison, um, the women get out and they're st so institutionalized that when they get out, they go to the supermarket and they see all the choices of bread and they get confused. It's actually not funny. It's actually sad because pretty much it's not that way in the prison. And the choices confuse them. It causes overload, and they end up going back into the prison. Choices can be very harmful, especially in our society. We think it's great, and it is great to a certain extent. We don't live in a communist nation where we have to wait online for bread. We have 50 different gazillion types of bread. I get confused sometimes. I scratch my head and say, what did my wife buy last? You know, I hate going shopping. But the point is just a lot of choices. We get so, many, so bogged down with choices that we don't know how to make 
commitment. Sometimes choice is the antithesis of commitment, right? And there's sometimes a capriciousness and a flightiness that's permeated in the church aggregately, the American church. And that's why Christian marriages fail, because the same lack of commitment to a spouse is the same lackluster eh, commitment to Christ. You know, it, it permeates from, from the secular part of your life to the spiritual part of your life. Lackluster. Eh. So I want to just say as an overview or conclusion of Colossians is this. It's to be Christ-centered and not self-centered. To be Christ-centered. The more we focus on Christ, the less we focus on everything else, including ourselves. He's the focus. It's a commitment to Christ and a commitment to his teachings. Now, as we segue into the book of Revelation, we have to employ the same principle. If we don't have a focus on Christ and make a commitment to his word and make a commitment to a relationship with Christ, you know what Revelation is going to be? Oh, ooh, ah, Revelation, you know, the angels and the, the beast and all this kind of stuff. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be boring. It's going to be lackluster. It's going to be ho-hum. It's going to be unapplicable to our daily lives if we don't make a commitment. Because like I said in the beginning, Revelation employs parts from the Old Testament, the New Testament. You know, you've you, you got to make the success of Sundays. If you're not here, you get a free download. Otherwise, chapter 3 is not going to make sense unless you're in chapter 2. You need to make a, a commitment. My desire, <laughs> how many times did I use the word commitment? My desire is we make a renewed commitment to Christ today. To be in his word. Start all over again. Even if it's a few verses every day. Start with a few verses. Sometimes people think, wow, the Bible's overwhelming. Where do I start? <laughs> right? A few verses a day. Start there. To be in prayer, even if it's a few minutes each day. To get every Sunday's Revelation sermon. And to make a commitment to our Lord, our marriage, our children, our church, our spiritual growth, and a commitment to prayer. Let's pray.